your future look like? The job you do today could be different than the jobs of tomorrow. Some see this as a challenge. At UCF, we see opportunity. A chance for you to grow your knowledge and strengthen your skills from anywhere life might take you. With in-demand degree programs and resources for your success, UCF Online can help you prepare for the future and all the possibilities that come with it. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I'm Tom Cavanaugh. And I am Kelvin Thompson. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. I'm in the right place. Yay! Yay. It's always a question. That's right. When you get on that airplane and say, you know, we'll be flying to Albuquerque today. And then you always have the... Albuquerque? You get that comedian pilot who's like, (laughs) wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't mind the flight attendants being funny. If you ever fly Southwest, sometimes they're hilarious. You, you don't look for humor in your pilots. No, I want a serious pilot. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. serious pilot. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. I got gotcha. you. Cool. Gotcha. Well, Kelvin, it's nice to see you. Mm-hmm. Nice to be seen. Nice to see I you. Saw a, I caught a, an actual glimpse of you in the wild, sort of like Bigfoot. <laughs> From a distance, I what, saw. What's that famous photo? Look, what's, what's Bigfoot doing? He's like, got his, it looks like a zombie. He's got his hands out in front of him. He's like, <laughs> yeah, and he's loping along. Yeah, and so loping. I, I had a Kelvin sighting <laughs> in the wild. That's right, in the wild. Uh, so I'm going to have to do some, you know, plaster casts of your footprints <laughs> to prove that I, I saw you, that you were there. Medium foot. Yeah, I'll have some Zapruder footage of you, you know, kind of shaky camera walking down the hall. Do you, do you know that we think that we've actually, I don't know about Bigfoot, but we think we've cracked the code on uh, Loch Ness Monster? You know, that's a thing. Really? You should Google that. We think we have scientific data uh, with a, put a picture together of, of what the Loch Ness Monster actually is. When I was a kid, I was really into the Loch Ness Monster. Huh. Tried to convince my parents when I was in third grade that Scotland? me and my, my best friend should fly to Scotland by ourselves. Sure. Yeah. And... <laughs> And see the Loch Ness monster. Yeah, it made perfect sense to me at the time. I remember the dinner table conversation Mm -hmm. with my parents and my dad's sort of bemused look, like, "Really? That's your plan?" (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we bill this show as a collegial conversation about online blended digital teaching and learning conducted over a shared cup of coffee, and by golly. We have a shared cup of coffee today, Tom. By golly, I've got it. That was a jump cut. (laughs) That was an abrupt transition. Yeah, no, that's all right. I'm drinking Mm -hmm. a cup of coffee that was shared with me by none other than the fleetingly spotted Kelvin Thompson. Out of the thermos. I was like, where did my thermos thermos go? Yeah, you're looking for your thermos. There's the thermos. There it is. That's right. Uh, loping along. And so I've taken pro- a sip, and I, uh, po- I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. So you're probably wondering what this is that you're drinking. Besides coffee? <laughs> yes, I'm yes. wondering. Specifically, within the coffee family, what specifically it is. So today's coffee is from Sparrow's Coffee in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've been to Grand Rapids once in January. I don't recommend it. But, uh, I, you know, I felt like I could do anything after a week in Grand Rapids uh, in January. I was walking around in shirt sleeves. It was like 40. This poor Florida native was like, eh, it's nothing. So this coffee is called 
Come Together Coffee. It's part of a rather unique initiative in which individual coffee roasters from around the U.S. are making a one-time unique batch of coffee with all of the profits going to a particular local charity. Trade Coffee, that coffee subscription service with the recommendation engine that we've talked about previously, works with a network of 50 such U.S. roasters, and each week, another handful of these roasters announces their special batch of coffee. So you won't be able to find any information on this particular coffee that we're drinking today because it's already gone. But in the show notes, we'll put some information about this Come Together Coffee initiative so that you can shop for an upcoming coffee and charity because it's a worthy cause. Come Together Coffee. So, you know, how many times have each of us said recently something along the lines of, We're all going to get through this together. We're all in this together. We're going to get through it together. Perhaps now more than ever, we need our unique perspectives and backgrounds to come together to holistically address a whole bunch of different issues, not just the pandemic, not just racism, but all kinds of stuff. We're better together. And so we need to come together to be better together. So how's the coffee? I think you said it was okay. And how's the connection today's episode topic? I, I enjoy the coffee, as I mentioned. I think it's, I think it's good. Um, and it's nice to be sharing it, even though we're on opposite ends of the office from each other. Yeah. Um, and the, the connection. So let me take a shot at this. Yeah, um, yeah. Come Together is one of my favorite Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and thinking, sing a few, few notes for us. I, I, if we want to keep our listeners, <laughs> I won't do that. Um, I was open. <laughs> um, but I'm assuming it has nothing to do with the Beatles. Um, but kind of all getting through this together, coming together, I think I'm seeing a, a tenuous strand <laughs> connecting that to grasp our it, theme. Grasp it. Yeah. Which, which I happen to know what today's theme is about. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we are going to talk about, um, surveys mm-hmm. and data and pulling together the collective voice of our various constituents to better understand what's going on out there and, and react to it, hopefully in positive ways. Mm-hmm. So am I, am I in the general yeah. vicinity? Yeah. I, so C plus? <laughs> I'll take it. That's passing. No, yes. I'm asking. I'm like, I'm asking. You know, I, oh, you know. I thought you were giving me a no, C+. No, I think you did a good job. I'm just like, so you're saying that's like a C-plus connection maybe, you know, kind of setting it up? No? B-minus? Yeah. No, yeah, I'll give you the B-minus. All right. Okay. Well, that's, I've, I've had worse. So, yeah, that's exactly it. And, and as a reminder, for as long as this current reality of remote teaching lasts, we are continuing a monthly mini-series of field reports Ask Tom to do his Edward R. Murrow impersonation for you. Field reports in our first Monday episodes in which we focus upon some unique aspect of this current circumstance. Meanwhile, on the third Monday episodes, we're going to keep on doing the, um, the guest interview spots because, hey, life goes on. And as a reminder, in episode number 67, Field Report 3, carrying out a more online every semester strategy, we said toward the end, well-prepared faculty and intentionally designed online course sections result in arguably less tech support requests, more successful students, better satisfied students, better satisfied faculty, so forth and so on. And this is where we pick up our fourth field report. That's right. And um, we wanted to talk today about uh, the use of data. Mm -hmm. And we like to consider ourselves a uh, a data-informed organization, a data-informed university. I know that we're not alone in that, and there have been a lot of pushes for data analytics and learning analytics and other kinds of things across the higher ed space, let alone 
you know, uh, healthcare or retail or whatever. Um, but here we happen to have um, uh, a pretty awesome colleague, Dr. Patsy Moskal, mm-hmm. who leads our digital learning uh, impact evaluation and, and is responsible for helping us uh, structure many of our evaluations and surveys. And, and she has led some of the, the recent surveying at UCF of mm-hmm. students and faculty as a result of this remote migration. Um, she did a, a kind of a just-in-time sort of pop-up survey in in March, um, kind of end of March, beginning of April, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. We were we were pretty early into it um, uh, just to see a quick pulse check for students how things were going. We've alluded to that one in the in previous field reports, I think. Yep. Um, and then we had a separate. Uh, student and faculty survey at the end of the spring semester, and we've compiled the data for that. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we've also got other kind of regular data points such as end of course evaluations, mm-hmm. end of course grades, other kinds of things that the university always looks at. And mm-hmm. we're trying to see what the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has been on uh, those kinds of measures. And it's been really interesting going through those various data sources. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe before we start talking about the specifics at UCF, I, uh, maybe you can indulge me. I, I want to uh, make a comment on, on some national data that I've mm-hmm. seen recently. That's good. That's good for broad contextualization. Yeah, and, and it's really in addressing a, a particular comment that mm-hmm. I've heard uh, both in the national media and then just sort of uh, from, from other individuals around, around campus. And that is that... Um, well, it's clear now that students don't like online learning. <laughs> is it? Is yes. it clear now? <laughs> I, I've, I've heard this said. And um, I, I'm not quite sure I accept that premise, but yeah. they are extrapolating <laughs> from some surveys that have come out, right? And um, in those surveys, there is a population of students who, who weren't happy with this. I know that there are, there are petitions to uh, some fairly selective elite Ivy League schools to um, get their money back or, or, you know, not Ivies, but whatever they call Ivy adjacent kinds of schools <laughs> to get their money back. Um, I think there's a lawsuit at the University of Chicago, for example, to, uh-huh. to get their money back. So uh-huh. there's, a, there's a level of dissatisfaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was an Ernst & Young Parthenon Group survey that was conducted in late April that uh, one of the stats that came out of it, one of the kind of overarching themes was that about 25% of the students were dissatisfied with, mm-hmm. with remote learning. And that was across all sectors, community college to research university to, to Ivy League. And um, okay, 25% more you want, than you want dissatisfied, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's another survey that was done by... Um, Bayview Analytics, Jeff Seaman and company, Cengage was the underwriter, um, but it was sponsored by five different organizations such as OLC and WCET mm-hmm. and Every Learner Everywhere. Up I remember I remember hearing about this. Yeah, and um, and there was a Canadian one as well. Um, they, they were surveying institutions, administrators more than they were like students directly like the Parthenon mm-hmm. group mm-hmm. Uh, survey did. But... One of the things that came out of that Bayview Analytics survey was that 97%, I think that's the number that I recall, 97% of institutions said 
that they had faculty who were teaching some remote courses who had no previous experience teaching online. Mm. So I contend <laughs> that 25% actually isn't that bad. That's right. Of dissatisfied for two reasons. <laughs> One is obviously these faculty weren't prepared. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not, no, no criticism of these faculty. We took them and they didn't know how to swim and we threw them in the pool and said yep. swim. And yep. they did the best they could. Um, but a, 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 imp, a quickly improvised synchronous Zoom class does not a quality online course make. And we know we're preaching to the choir <laughs> here. So the quality of these courses probably wasn't great, which is, I think, why University of Chicago and University of Pennsylvania and others are, are having students complain. But the other piece, and I think the piece that I just haven't heard talked about, is that the students who were forced to go into a remote environment are students that had specifically chosen to take face-to-face classes. Right. They didn't want online. Right. For whatever reason, they didn't like it. They don't think they're a good learner in online. They don't have the discipline, whatever. But they had they had chosen to be face-to-face students. And then they got shoved into something that they didn't want, that they didn't choose. Even if it was awesome, they probably wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> so I, I think combining putting somebody into something that they didn't like with the fact that it probably wasn't that great a quality to begin with, I mean, no wonder that you have a 25% dissatisfaction rate. Yeah. And um, and and to the point of this podcast, we're trying to use data to improve every semester mm-hmm. and, and improve in the areas where we can. So with that as a setup, and mm-hmm. a, thank you for letting me get on that soapbox because mm-hmm. it's something I've been thinking about for a while, mm-hmm. and I just haven't heard anybody talking about that. All mm-hmm. I've been hearing is that, oh, students don't like it. Well, those students don't. They didn't like it to begin with. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, without going down this rabbit trail too far, but it reminds me of uh, when we continue to talk about non-traditional students versus traditional students. Traditional students might as well be Bigfoot, right? (laughs) There's not not that many of them, right? The the majority of students in higher education are non-traditional students as a a label. So, you know, it's, it's sort of these... Well, you know, students. You know, well, which students, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, policymakers, in their mind, a yep. student is only what their experience of college was, which is nine times out of ten a traditional four-year, come out of high school, go to college yeah. sort of experience, Great. residential. Yeah. Uh, I tend to use the phrase um, traditional students with, with non-traditional requirements. Yeah. Or non-traditional needs, something yeah. like that. So you, sure. you may be an 18-year-old student, but you got to mm-hmm. work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, not some romanticized picture. So as a reminder, um, we are, in this episode, going to try to assemble a picture out of some data. Think of it as paint by numbers if you want, so that we we can see how we're doing through remote instruction here at UCF. And in so doing, we're hoping that maybe this will be a little bit of inspiration for you, uh, dear listeners, about how you can put your own pictures together at your own institutions. And uh, another little note here, we're dealing, we're looking back a lot in this episode about spring 2020 data because data lag, right? And summaries are faster than analyses and um, deep and data cleaning and, and all that stuff. So we're in summer 2020 as we record this and we'll be collecting new data, but we don't we won't have a picture of 2020, uh, summer 2020 until after the term is concluded. So a lot of this is going to be looking back at spring 2020. Um, so uh, big picture, we have some tech support data. We have some faculty survey, student survey data, 
uh, end of term, normal evaluation, and uh, grades, and then we'll talk about looking ahead uh, to fall 2020, and we'll do all of that in about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Yeah. You want to start with tech support? Sure. Uh, so just as a little bit of a contextualization, right, we don't have good data on, well, what about the online, really online courses? Do, do you really see uh, less tech support for those than the remote instruction? We don't have data that are fi that fine-grained, but we certainly have data that show us how term-to-term, uh, -term, spring 2019 versus spring 2020, how things looked. And our digital learning technical support team, which mainly focuses on the learning management system, but also responsible for fielding other tech support, such as, you know, Zoom, saw a marked increase in support tickets between those two terms, spring 2019 and spring 2020. On almost the same day between those two years, we received in 2019 134 help requests, but in 2020, 378 tickets. And Here's another factoid. This is interesting. In spring 2019, the, the biggest per day number of help requests came on the last day of classes for the term, right as finals were about to start. And in 2019, uh, on that day, there were 204 help tickets uh, submitted. In spring 2020, the last day of classes saw 327 help requests. Uh, but that was not the highest volume help ticket-supported day in spring 2020. That was the first day that we went to remote instruction. That was our highest volume for the entire spring 2020 term, uh, and that was the 378 uh, tickets um, on March 18th <laughs> that we received. So that's just an interesting comparison. No surprise, I guess, on that no. March 18th day. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, you want to talk for a little bit? You want to frame up some of the faculty versus student survey stuff? Sure. So um, we did run concurrent but separate faculty and student surveys at the end of the spring term. And um, overall, um, the faculty, I think, perceived that they adapted fairly well to the migration to remote instruction. So 82% um, said that they um, adapted extremely well to moderately well. And um, uh, zero percent reported extreme difficulty, mm -hmm. which uh, shocks me. We didn't get one. Um, I don't remember what the what the response rate was uh, of that survey, um, but um, typically, if somebody wasn't happy, we hear from them. <laughs> so uh, that that is uh, that, that was a little encouraging. Now, I think it's interesting. I may jump ahead here a little bit, but um, in the student survey. Um, we asked students, how well did you ad adjust to the mm -hmm. migration and how well do you think faculty adjusted? Mm -hmm. So the students sort of had a two-part mm -hmm. kind of similar question to what we asked faculty. And so 82% of faculty felt like they adjusted moderately to extremely well. 65% um, of students um, answered that question for themselves mm -hmm. the same way, moderately to extremely well. But um, I think that they, they had the same perception, a similar number for faculty. So their perception of faculty adjusting was lower than faculty's own perception of themselves adjusting. Mm -hmm. So about a third felt like they had some difficulty, and they felt like about a third of faculty had some difficulty. 
So um, I, I don't know if that's an equivalent number to the dissatisfaction number that I, I cited. I don't want to conflate those mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. from the Parthenon study. Right. This is, did you have difficulty? And this could be from anything. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't have a webcam to um, I didn't understand how to use Zoom to uh, my work schedule changed and I could no longer easily, you know, get online at the time I needed to. I mean, it was... We didn't specify the details. That we did have some follow-on questions about, you know, what it was, and there was some some themes. But um, that that number, that percentage between the faculty and the students, um, could be interpreted by them in any number of different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just to kind of boil that down, the way I think of that is students are just a little bit more critical, right? They're they're the ones who are most affected, right? And um, uh, faculty looking at students, 94% of the faculty said uh, that students adapted extremely to moderately well, but students speaking about themselves, 65% said extremely to moderately well. Students looking at faculty, 67% of the faculty uh, adapted extremely to moderately well, but the faculty thought of themselves, 82% of us, yeah. you know, 80. so it's just students are a little bit more critical. And that's kind of understandable, I think. Um, and or faculty are just being a little bit patient and generous about the whole thing. So there's a lot of ways that you can kind of make sense of these data. You can try to interpret them. Um, but or, or, it, it is and interesting. I think the, the, what we heard, especially in this area where we have a lot of uh, hospitality industry, whether it's restaurants or hotels or others, that um, and those those employees suffered particularly hard during mm -hmm. this pandemic, and we know that a lot of our students just were lost work, were furloughed, were fired, and it impacted them in ways that maybe didn't get communicated to faculty. Maybe the faculty just didn't know, but the, the students shared that through the survey by saying, yeah, this was really hard um, because I, I lost my job and I didn't know how I was going to make rent, yet I still have my paper due on Thursday or whatever. The, the faculty may not have been as aware of those things if the, if the student didn't communicate it to them. Yeah, which I think is, is worth mentioning in the faculty surveys. Um, faculty identified what they considered top challenges to moving remote. And the, the most prevalent um, top challenge was student challenges and stress. That's what the faculty said. 42% of faculty respondents said students had challenges and or stress. So there was a recognition, uh, I think broadly, that this is hard on students. And then um, the second one, back to your <laughs> broader survey comments, faculty said that another big challenge for making this remote instruction thing happen is that students have a personal preference for face-to-face. 38% of faculty said that. And then 37% uh, said, said uh, uh, ensuring academic integrity. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I'm, I'm aware of both of those. Yeah, just from, right. <laughs> from the anecdotal conversations I've had with faculty and deans and associate deans over the last two months. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that, um, especially the academic integrity one that was, especially for the faculty who did not have experience teaching online, had never designed an assessment for online delivery yeah. before. Uh, it was a big concern for them. They, they just couldn't really conceptualize in the week we gave them uh, a different assessment strategy to 
besides just closed book tests in a classroom. And, I, and I'm not exactly sure it's fair to ask them to because their assessment strategies were already set up um, and, and the semester was already more than half over by the time we did that. So, yeah, that was a big one. And then, you know, the faculty perceived 38% of students, um, uh, you know, prefer face-to-face. -face. Maybe, you know. Maybe that's the third of students, approximately, that, that struggled with this. And we know from our own numbers of, of, of like student credit hours or sections or whatever and how they fill, you know, that, that's, that's about the number of fully face-to-face -face credit hours we do in a year. I think it's something like 37%, something like that. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't parse it too exactly, right? Because it's just that um, the faculty respondents, 38% of those faculty said students' personal preference for face-to-face -face is, uh, is a challenge. I don't know if that directly equates to 38% of students, but nevertheless, no, nevertheless, no, it's, uh, it's a thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, I just think it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I agree, I wouldn't, I wouldn't correlate those directly or anything, but... Um, but we do know that there are a certain percentage of students, back to sort of what I said mm -hmm. at the top, yep. who just want to be face-to-face. -face. And that's okay. And that's okay. I mean, Any it, other semester. it's not my job to tell them that they can't be, right? And sometimes I feel like when I talk to faculty, that certain faculty, that, um, uh, that they're accusing me of making them. Yeah, like, right. Uh, well, any other semester, no, I would never force somebody to go yeah. online. It's not my job. It's my job to support everybody who wants to go online. But this semester, we, like you said, <laughs> nobody had a choice. No, exactly. Yeah. That being said, I, I'm fascinated by this. It was kind of a, a write-in, like, you know, you could write in your own thing. But faculty, biggest positive surprises. And I love this. First thing, you know, these are kind of in order. I don't have exact percentages, but these are in uh, decreasing order of uh, prevalence um, as um, uh Patsy's uh, graduate students kind of uh, worked with her to compile and summarize. The technology worked. <laughs> What's the biggest surprise? <laughs> and I think that's awesome. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, kudos to our, our IT team that did a lot of things that I don't think people knew. Yeah. Um, I mean, like they goosed the, the network ring bandwidth uh, by like tenfold. And, and nobody knows that. No. They, um, they, they procured uh, an enterprise license of Zoom where we didn't really have one. We had spotty licenses mm -hmm. around campus, but they combined those licenses and got it to everybody within a couple of days. Over a weekend, it was like on a Sunday that thing got signed. I mean, there was just a whole bunch of things that they did that um, I want to give them a bunch of credit for. No, I agree. There's some more pedagogical things, right? Um, faculty said they were surprised that interaction increased and that students were resilient, student work quality increased. Uh, now, some of these things you can interpret different ways, right? Like uh, there's differential narratives that can take place with the like student work quality increased. Well, academic misconduct, you know, you could you could go there if you wanted or to. Or I dropped three assignments. That's, That's why right. it went up. It lenient, was really rigorous. And it depends on who you're talking to, what narrative you're going to get from that. But I think by and large, the faculty were were enormously understanding yeah. of the students tried. I mean, we saw example after example of the faculty kind of going above and beyond to try to reach out to students and, and help and be understanding and, and provide alternative sorts of things for them to do if for some reason they couldn't. Because I mean, we knew that there were legitimate like equipment issues, like 
they didn't have webcams because they were left in their dorm rooms when they had to evacuate and during spring break and they couldn't get back to get them. And there were just all kinds of issues that, that happened. And, and the faculty by and large did a really good job, I think, just trying to, to meet their students where they were. Yeah. Do you want to jump uh, for a second down to the end of term uh, student perception of instruction thing? Because I yeah. think there's, there's another counterintuitive takeaway there. What was interesting when we looked at the student perception of instruction, that's our, our end of course evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was fascinating that when we compared spring 2020 to spring 2019, um, it all went up uh, with one exception when we looked at it by modality. So we had different modality courses, right? We have fully online, we have blended, we have some video, and we have face-to-face. And we didn't recode our modalities when we, got, when we moved to remote instruction. So we were able to still look at the face-to-face courses that went remote at the end of the semester. And they actually went up in the student end-of-course evaluations. Uh, the average, you know, number of mm-hmm. the numerical score for each of these, each of these courses. Uh, the only one that went down was actually the lecture capture course, which di- shouldn't have changed, right? Because that was already a distance modality. Now, I will say that we don't have as many of those as we once did. Mm-hmm. So the N may be a little smaller sure. on that. So a, a, a little movement here or there mm-hmm. m- might have inadvertent or inordinately impacted that right. percentage. But the, the lecture capture modality was the only one that went down. Everything else went up which was gratifying. And I think what that and says... surprising. A little surprising. I didn't... Actually, you're right. I didn't expect that. But I think it says that the students recognized that the faculty were doing the best that they possibly could. I, I think so. And the students kind of gave them a break, I think. I think so. I think so. I think we saw a lot of... I mean, back to those uh, other survey results, right? I think... I think... Uh, faculty recognized what students were going through and i think students recognized some of what faculty were going through and and in a in a rare moment of beauty there was grace extended by both parties to the other yeah <laughs> and, and, nice. and at the risk of of kind of tooting our own horn a little bit um the fact that that online learning is so deeply mm-hmm. integrated into what we do at UCF. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in every single department it, at the same level as other departments, mm-hmm. but it's it's pretty ubiquitous here. And we had deep support, and we've got a large staff, and we've talked about that. And and you, it, we talked about the numbers that you've run previously about the the percentage of student of I'm sorry of faculty who have been through some mm-hmm. form of mm-hmm. training. Yeah, it, it was high. Yeah. So when school, when ninety seven percent of schools say that they had some faculty who were teaching that didn't ever have any online experience, mm-hmm. um, w- yeah, we're probably included in that because we mm-hmm. probably had some faculty that didn't really. But it was a small percentage of faculty yeah. that hadn't done anything yeah. that migrated over. So I would say that translated maybe into a higher quality experience for these students than maybe they expected. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and not to make too much of this, but I think some other stuff out of that student perception of instruction, the the pattern that you described holds when you look at the data in different ways, like uh, academic level of the courses or uh, academic standing of the students and by discipline, where discipline equals like the individual college in which they're based, except for like three colleges, like our honors college, uh, our college of graduate studies, and uh, optics. And in those cases, spring 2020 was slightly lower 
than spring 2019. And I would say those are three colleges where we don't do a ton of online learning. Exactly. You know, optics, hardly anything, and uh, honors, uh, yeah, nothing right. really. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, exactly. yeah, that's interesting. And then meanwhile, if you look by modality, uh, as we know, and for our listeners, the course modalities where we and our central operations have a lot of influence in supporting and uh, supporting the design, intentional design of blended courses, fully online courses in both spring 2019 and spring 2020, those modality courses are a little bit higher in terms of the end of term evaluations than say the alternative, like uh, face-to-face courses. Mm -hmm. And I think Again, that speaks to intentionality and, and so forth. You want to comment about grades? Yeah, maybe maybe that will be the sort of the last data that we mm-hmm. we really uh, dig into. But um, just a kind of passing comment, maybe more than anything else. At the end of the spring semester, like a lot of institutions, we implemented the choice for students to to go pass fail on an individual course basis. What we call SU satisfactory unsatisfactory, um, if they wanted to. And I think as a result of that, we saw more passing grades from spring 19, where it was 89.4% passing, to spring of 20, which was 91.3%. So it was basically one point higher uh, passing percentage um, of spring 20 versus uh, spring 19. Um, I think that the SU option maybe had something to do with that. Maybe we're just getting smarter students and teaching them better. But given everything that happened and all the disruption, yeah. I think that the SU is more likely. The, the GPA went up too, um, as did uh, the percentage, by a small degree, the percentage of students who came off of academic probation. Mm-hmm. And there was a very large decrease in the number of students who went on academic probation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, less fewer students went on to academic probation than the previous spring. And I think that's a direct result of the pass-fail SU Mm -hmm. option. So students could do that on a course-by-course basis and uh, choose a a U, for example, if it's a course that they were not going to pass, uh, if they were not going to earn a C or better in, that was our criteria. Uh, or maybe a C minus. I think it was a C actually. And um, if they chose a U, um, they, it would not negatively impact their GPA, and it would mm-hmm. not negatively impact their um, standing regarding um, academic probation, because that's based on GPA. So as a result, I think we had more students who just basically got amnesty in the in the spring um, as a one term sort of anomaly than uh, than we might ordinarily see. Great. So lots of data, lots of voices represented. And we've already uh, been sharing these data internally to try to um, inform what we're doing in our central support resources, like with our instructional designers as we carry out kind of innovative faculty preparation. But we've got a lot uh, in the the frying pan as we get ready for fall 2020, um, as we try to make that term as safe and effective as possible. So we hope to be able to provide an update on those efforts informed by these data when the time is right. Indeed, and it seems to change on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to take the longer view. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You want to try to bottom line it for us? 
We often refer to our institutions as communities. Mm -hmm. And in a community, we need to listen to everyone's voice so that we consider as many different perspectives as possible as we make decisions and move forward. Mm -hmm. As we move forward with remote instruction and as online education professionals, we will learn from our faculty and our students and ensure that teaching and learning are as effective as they can possibly be. Mm, I hope so. Right. Yes. All right, so Kelvin, um, mm -hmm. you were going to uh, share something maybe a little bit different with our mm -hmm. listening audience as we, as we wrap up this episode. I think we can indulge everybody's patience for just a, another moment. Just another moment. This will be right. worth it, folks. Trust uh, well, me. Well, I don't know. <laughs> so in, in episode 68, we joked briefly about our top cast insiders receiving a decoder ring, which is a you know, culture, pop culture reference. This inspired us, or at least it inspired me, to go off the rails a little bit to have some fun with occasional secret messages for insiders in our episodes. So we have since shared a decoder with our TopCast insiders. And as a reminder, you, dear listener, can become a TopCast insider by signing up for free at http colon slash slash bit.ly B-I-T dot L-Y slash TopCast Insider, lowercase, no spaces, bit.ly slash TopCast Insider. So now, insiders, grab your decoders, because today's secret message is a series of letters which I'll read using a phonetic or spelling alphabet where words stand for letters. You write down the letters. Here they are. Denver, King, Zero. New York, that's one word. Adams, Zero. King, Boston, Victor, Victor, X-Ray, another one word. George, Easy, King, Boston, Zero, King, Union, Roger. Plug that into your decoder and find the secret message. If you become a TopCast insider, you too can decipher these future secret messages. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> <laughs> Google that. You'll appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> all right. Well, this is if you love it or if you hate it, it's all Kelvin. <laughs> Get your decoders. That yeah. Your little orphan Annie decoder rings. Uh-huh. Awesome. So I, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> You'll get the secret message if you uh, if you uh, become an insider, and you'll you'll appreciate it. I think. Until next time, for Topcast, I'm Tom. I'm Kelvin. See ya.